Out of the Vat. Hello, welcome to Out of the Vat, a podcast where we speak to philosophers about their work and about their lives, both inside and outside of philosophy. I'm Ewan Rogers, and today I'll be speaking to David Papineau. David's a professor of philosophy of science at King's College London and spends half of each year teaching at the Cooney Graduate Centre in New York. David has written widely on epistemology, metaphysics, and the philosophy of science and mind. He's also interested in the philosophy of sport, which he explores in his most recent book, Knowing the Score, published in 2017. Okay, hello David, thanks for coming down. Can you uh, first tell us a bit about what you're working on at the moment? Well, I'm kind of just about in between projects. I'm just finishing one and starting another. So I've just finished a complete draft on a, of a book on perception, okay. the metaphysics of sensory experience. So it's a very traditional topic, you know, mm-hmm. what's going on when you have conscious sensory experience of the world, you know, you're sitting, you're having all these visual experiences, you're seeing things. What's, what's the substance of that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's a very standard central topic, but I kind of never really worked on it. I mean, there were these other people who did it, and I kind of looked at it. And, I, and then I was working on something about Tito semantics, naturalist approaches to mental representation, and I started thinking hard about perception, and I realised the views I had didn't fit with what the people doing philosophy of perception. Okay thought. I mean, there's naive realists and then there's representationists. That was the standard view and I thought, well, I'm probably a representationist. But I realised that, that the views I had didn't fit with, not just not with naive realism, didn't fit with representationalism either. And I kind of started working on it and looking at it. And I realised that, that all the views held by people working on the philosophy of perception are just really wrong. And it's a funny situation. And I've written this book defending what seems to me the obvious view. And I think it probably is a view that looks pretty obvious to most scientists, most intelligent school kids who think about this, most philosophers who don't work on the philosophy of perception. <laughs> but this is kind of... Uh, I wouldn't call it a ghetto, but a kind of enclave where they they all have strange views. So I'm I'm I've written a book exposing the mistaken views and developing the kind of everyday standard view in more detail. I mean, everyday standard views. It's it's that kind of sensory experience is all inside our head. It doesn't involve the world. I mean, that's mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's pretty standard standard view, but it's not philosophically popular. I want to make it popular. So, so that's a project I've just finished. And I'm about to start writing some papers, and I hope eventually a book, on, on causation. Okay. Completely different, different kind of thing. And I'm quite excited about it because I've... My first degree was in mathematical statistics, and my first job was in the sociology department. So I've always known about and been interested in the techniques that non-experimental scientists, epidemiologists, uh, uh, educational sociologists, people doing surveys use to do surveys, notice a lot of correlations and then infer causal structure. I've always known about it and I've always been interested and I've always been 
agitated that none of the philosophical theories of causation, the metaphysical accounts of causation, cast any light on them. I mean, they're kind of inconsistent with, with the fact that these techniques work. And I've written various papers trying to push this kind of stuff over the decades, but the, the atmosphere's never been quite right. I mean, there's, there was all David Lewis counterfactual theories of causation, and that's dominated the scene for the last 40 years, and uh, it didn't really fit with the kind of thing I was interested in. And, but now the situation's changed, partly because of Judea Pearl, Jim Woodward, a lot of philosophers have got interested in aspects of the tradition I got interested in when I was working in the sociology department. And so, I mean, they still don't understand it right. And they're thinking about it all wrong. But at least they're kind of in the same ballpark as the things I'm interested in. So now I'm going to write a book uh, showing people how to think about the connection between correlation statistics and causation. I'm, I'm doing my, my graduate seminar in New York this semester on this and I've got a bunch of good students and some people sitting in and we're going through all the, all the issues and I've already kind of got a paper half written so, so that's my new project. Uh, the, I don't know what I'm going to call the book if it arrives at a book. The, the metaphysics of causation. I've just written the metaphysics of sensory experience. Now I'm going to do the metaphysics of causation, or perhaps the statistical nature of causation. I'm not. I'm not sure. So, um, so going back to your, your recent book on perception, can you tell us a bit more about um, what the faults are as you see them with the other popular views of perception, so that dialectic realism and representationalism. So. Direct realism, I don't think, is so. Bad, direct realism, naive realism. That's mm -hmm. the view that, that uh, our conscious sensory experience, when we have conscious sensory experience, involves our being in contact, acquainted with the, the facts before us. And that's a nice, sensible view. I can kind of make sense of it. I mean, the big problem is that you might think, many people, that, that you can have just the same conscious experience when when you're hallucinating, and there isn't such fact, so that's a big problem for naive realism, mm -hmm. and I think, in fact, it's a, it's a, it's a disabling problem. I mean, I think I'm, I'm not a naive realist because I, 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 I think you can have just the same conscious experience when, when there's nothing there. Naive realists have to start saying, well, uh, it's not the same conscious experience because real conscious experiences, I mean, real perceptual experiences involve contact with a fact, and you've got no contact with the fact when you're hallucinating. So it's a different conscious experience. But they admit you can't tell from the inside mm -hmm. whether you're having the one kind or another. And I think the idea of a conscious difference that's never uh, uh, detectable from the inside is kind of, uh, we've lost hold of the notion of consciousness. So that's, that's what's wrong with mm -hmm. naive realism. But I mean, it's, it's, it's a cogent view. Representationalism is, is much weirder and uh, it's not obvious immediately why it's so weird, but it, but it is. So you have the conscious feelings and then there's the idea that your perceptual states 
represent the world to be a certain way, and representing the world to be a certain way is a matter of your perceptual states having certain relations to objects and properties mm -hmm. in the world. And uh, they lay down a truth condition that certain objects must have certain properties. And you might think, how can the mere existence of conscious feelings constitute that a certain truth condition is being laid down? And none of the... I mean, there's various different ways of developing representation of the series of perception, but to my mind, none of them produce anything like a cogent account of what these two different kinds of properties representing things to be thus and so and consciously feeling a certain way have to do with each other. The standard account, the most kind of plausible account on the surface, though it's not really plausible, is that the conscious experience involves the kind of properties that are present in the world. So the conscious experience involves the property of yellowness or squareness and so on, mm -hmm. even in the case where you're hallucinating. So you can have the same conscious property when you're hallucinating because somehow squareness and yellowness are present in your consciousness. Right. And that's a kind of plausible and, and seductive idea, but if you look at it, in the cold light of day, it's completely weird, and uh, I really don't know what to make of it. I mean, so here I am hallucinating, and somehow, let's suppose, squareness is present in my consciousness, and, well, is, 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 how is it present in my consciousness? Is, is anything square around? I'm hallucinating, so nothing outside me is square, and my brain isn't square, and my sensory experience isn't square, and I'm not square. So, so we've got squareness in my brain, even though nothing nearby is square. So somehow there's this uninstantiated property squareness, maybe a universal up in Plato's space, and that's present in my sensory experience, and that's what makes it light up consciously the way it does. And, and by now, I think this is, theory is completely crazy. So, I've, so mm -hmm. I, I resort to the admittedly very ugly theory, but it's kind of, in a way, the dominant theory since the start of modern philosophy, that sensory experiences are internal, intrinsic, qualitative properties of people that have no essential connection to anything outside outside their heads. And then I, I mean, so I spent half the book knocking down the mm -hmm. bad theories, and then I spent half the book trying to develop that in a cogent way and make sense of the, the fact that our eccentric experience is certainly very richly structured in a way that at first pass, before you start thinking hard, makes you feel that it involves a world outside the mind. And can you tell us a bit more about your, your recent work on causation? So, let, let me just give you an example of the kind of techniques I'm talking about, which I said, it's a scandal, it's an embarrassment sure, that okay. philosophers have never, never really got to grips with. So, so imagine you're doing survey research, you're educational sociologist, and you find there's a correlation between private schools, expensive schools, and good exam results. Mm -hmm. 
And so that kind of suggests that, you know, spending money on schools uh, improves your kids' exam results. But then suppose you find, you do some more research, and you, as it said, control for parental income. So you look separately at the rich parents and the poor parents, mm -hmm. and you find that among the rich parents, the ones who go to state schools do just as well as the ones at private schools. And similarly among the poor parents, I mean, the few that send their kids to private schools don't, in fact, do any better. So in either case, it turns out, do the schools make any difference to exam results? Mm -hmm. And okay. so we conclude that schools don't really cause exam results. It's a spurious correlation. The, the co-variation of schools and exam results is due to their both being associated with, with uh, affluent home background, mm -hmm. which people easier to send their kids to private school and uh, their other advantages, nothing to do with the schools. In, in, in fact, in truth, if you, if you look at the educational sociology, that's not far from the, the truth. I mean, schools don't actually make much difference once you, when you take socioeconomic factors into account. Okay. So, here, so you, you're told, you know, if your correlation doesn't prove causation, but there's a case where a slightly, not just one correlation, but a more complicated set of correlations does seem to establish a causal conclusion. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, as I said, uh, I've been looking at 50 years of philosophers talking about causation and very little of what they say has any relevance to understanding why those kind of techniques work. And I think, and now it gets rather messy, that, that you need to think of causation as to do with patterns of dependency between things that are manifested in just those kinds of correlations. And causal, causal connections are just uh, correlations that aren't screened off, don't disappear when you control for further factors. And uh, if you attend to the structure of cor such correlations, you can, you can distinguish between Okay. The issue, the issue in, 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 in analysing causation is not just getting an idea of two things co-varying, that's just Hume's idea of constant conjunction. Mm -hmm. It's distinguishing the causes from the effects. Yeah. Causation has a, has a direction, which just uh, uh, constant conjunction doesn't, and you need some account of which are the causes, which are the effects. And I think if you look at the patterns of, of, of correlation displayed by various kinds of events, then... The, the causes and effects fit into those patterns of correlation differently. So, so I want to develop a theory that says it's, it's of the essence of causal direction that it displays itself in certain kinds of correlations. And what's the most controversial philosophical position you've ever held? Controversial? <laughs> okay, I'm an, I'm an Everettian. Okay. Right? <laughs> uh, I'm pretty convinced Everettian. I think the world is constantly branching into alternative realities, all the time. Every time something chancy happens, which at the microscopic level is happening all the time, uh, we get two different, different realities. And... Uh, uh, I mean, you have a quantum coin and uh, you spin it and write so coin to quantum mechanics. Uh, there's two outcomes. It comes up, hence it comes up tails. And 
on this view, they're both their reality, reality branches into a branch with, with heads, branch and tails. I mean, it's like Schrodinger's cat, mm -hmm. the cat's alive, the cat's dead. And if you observe the coin, you branch into two futures, two, two descendants of me, one who sees the coin up and one who sees the coin down. And, I mean, there are circles in which that's not controversial. I mean, mm -hmm. British philosophers of physics mostly think that. But it's a pretty crazy view. And most people will think you're just mad. And, uh, and, uh, and it's, in fact, a very disturbing view. I mean, uh, if you take it seriously, which, which I do, but I don't... I used to more, but I've kind of let it go. <laughs> let it kind of influence your your real personal sense of yourself and your family and your friends. Uh, all the time there are these things happening. You know, you, mm. you're, you know, you, you're, you're being diagnosed with cancer a you know, hundred times a day. It's uh, 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 mm -hmm. uh, in all these branches. In fact, there, there we hope. Uh, There's significant branches than the ones in which you don't get cancer, but they're, they're there. In fact, this metaphysics doesn't really make a difference to the way that you plan and you make decisions and so on, because um, they're unlikely outcomes and you don't really take them into account in your planning and you design things so that you do well over the likely outcomes, and uh, that's how we normally think anyway. Mm -hmm. But on this view, the unlikely outcomes do all happen. And uh, uh, you kind of think, well, I'm lucky, I'm lucky that I'm here now. But there's another view uh, that's having a bad, a bad time. It doesn't make much difference to how you think and act and plan, but it does make a difference to... to judgments of relief and regret. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you take your attention off your driving and wish, uh, and you think, well, that was lucky. Uh, uh, I could have crashed into that car. But if it was really a chancy event, I mean, so 95% of reality has got you surviving, but 5% has got you ending up all mangled because you weren't paying attention. And so your relief ought to be, ought to be moderated by, I mean, I, I, I did this bad thing, but nothing bad happened. Actually, you did this bad thing and something bad did happen. So, mm -hmm. yeah, okay. Uh, and, uh, yes, so, I don't tell everybody about this. <laughs> <It's kind> of... <laughs> and what do you say to people who say this is mad? Uh, well, I say that's just how it is. I mean, no, <laughs> okay. so why? So why do I think it? I mean, yeah. I actually think it for two reasons. I mean, one is the standard reason among philosophy of physics. It, it's it's surprisingly the view that, from a mathematical physicist's point of view, gives you the simplest view of reality. Okay, you don't have to bring in strange Heath-Robinsonist mechanisms to account for why the 
wave function collapses, and so it doesn't collapse. I mean, it's all mm -hmm. nice, smooth uh, physics, and the cost is you just got a lot of a lot of alternative realities. Uh, I have a personal reason. I mean, personal. Not, um, I have a further reason for liking the Everettian view, which. I mean, I've published a few times, but, but it doesn't really seem to grab anybody else very much, which is unorthodox thinking in which, in a chancy situation, only one reality happens. Uh, there's a kind of puzzle that, if that's the case, why do you act on probabilities. Suppose mm -hmm. there's this, this outcome, I know the coin comes down heads at 75%, and this other outcome comes down tails 25%, and somebody says, okay, I'll bet you it evens uh, heads or tails, you choose heads or tails, you choose heads, okay? And there's a puzzle, why do you choose heads, right? I mean, it looks obvious because it's more probable, but, but actually what you want is to win the money. You don't want to choose the action that makes winning most probable. You want to choose the action that makes winning actual. Yeah. And it's possible that the coin might have come down tails. It was 25% possible. So it's quite possible that even if you choose heads, you don't get, you don't get the money. And so you've chosen what rationality, publicity, rationality dictates, but you haven't chosen what will actually give you the money. So now you might think, well, maybe you won't get the money the first time, but if you carry on betting like that, you'll get the money uh, if you bet 10 times. But in fact, no, if you bet 10 times, you can do the sums. It's still not guaranteed that you're going to get the money. And uh, it's just, I mean, it's, it's a real nasty puzzle that some people say there's no answer to about how you can justify betting with the odds, given that what you want is not to bet with odds per se, but to get success in the bit of reality that becomes actual. From the Everettian point of view, that puzzle just goes away. You've got these two futures. Uh, one has kind of got 75% weight, one has got 25% weight, and and you choose the action that does best on weighted average across the two realities and put it like this. There's no sense in which from the Everettian point of view, you bet heads and it can turn out you made the wrong decision. Mm -hmm. If you bet heads, you've done the thing that maximizes uh, goodness over all of future reality. Whereas on orthodoxy, you can do the rational thing and it can turn out not to have been the right thing to do. And I think that's, that's a really ugly feature of the orthodox mm -hmm. point of view. And which position have you changed your mind about? So, I'm a committed physicalist now, mm -hmm. and have been for some time, and there was a time when I didn't used to be. So that's a kind of changing my mind, I think. I'm not sure I've got any other very clear cases, but that's that's curious. I was I was always a naturalist. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you my first book was a book called Four Science in the Social Sciences, okay. and it was 
defending empiricism, looking for regularities and causes in the in the social sciences against people who thought that social sciences were kind of Fustian and hermeneutics and understanding mm -hmm. and meaning and so on. And that was in the, I wrote that in the, in the 70s. But there's nothing in that book about about physicalism, about reality is physically constituted, not at all. And looking back, it wasn't wasn't an issue when I was growing up philosophically. It was becoming an issue, and I was a bit behind the, behind the game and not noticing it, but I think I might have been some kind of idealist phenomenalist in the, in the early 70s. And if you look back into the 50s, there were people like... There was a debate about reasons and causes in history. And so there were, and I think reasons and causes, no, our reasons and causes, not reasons and causes in history, that was one part of it, but our reasons and causes in, in psychology. And what that meant was were there laws predicting people's behaviour on the basis of their beliefs and desires, or is explaining behaviour in terms of beliefs and desires just a matter of understanding, putting yourself into the position, the perspective of the agent, making sense of what they're doing with no prediction or laws around. So that was a debate between the kind of scientific people and the and, uh, more Wittgensteinian meaning kind of people. But it wasn't, did you think the mind was just the brain? Or did you think the mind was somehow different from the brain? That wasn't on the agenda. So physicalism really wasn't an issue in the 50s. All the famous articles, Feigl, Davidson, David Lewis, Armstrong, Smart, and so on, were in the 50s and early 60s. And they hadn't really become part of my education when I started doing philosophy. So I started off as somebody, you know, um, I was a committed naturalist, but I didn't really need to think about physicalism. And it was only towards the end of the 80s that I found myself disagreeing with mm -hmm. people who weren't inclined to be physicalists. And I thought, well, now this question has come up. Yes, I am inclined to be a physicalist. And I uh, started thinking of arguments as to why, why this was the right view and other people were wrong. But, but if you'd asked me when I first started doing philosophy, when I first started teaching philosophy, I, I might have said, no, I'm just a, uh, the world is basically to do with uh, observable reality. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a construct out of appearances, something like that. Okay. okay. Uh, Almost a kind of bathroom. So, so, so it's, not, it's not quite changing my mind. I, as I said, I mean, I wasn't, committed idealist. Mm -hmm. It's just that the issue really wasn't wasn't a, a salient one when I first started doing philosophy. And and now it's very important for me. So it's 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 a development perhaps more than a change of mind. Okay, um what's the most recent non-philosophical book you've read? I read a really interesting book called The Journal of a Disappointed Man. Okay by W. Barbellion. 
In fact, it's a pseudonym for a man called Bruce Cummings, I think. Mm -hmm. It's an Edwardian book published, I don't know, circa 1920, but it's set... It's a, it's a diary. It's a diary of this, this man who died young of multiple sclerosis. I mean, I don't know if it was even called that yet, but, but the doctors knew. He found out when he tried to enlist. He had a medical examination and the doctors diagnosed him as having this, this neurodegeneration disease. And in fact, he opened a letter by mistake. He wasn't supposed to read it and saw that, that he had maybe five years to live. But that comes very late in the in the journal, it starts off, I mean, it's, it's a diary. Mm -hmm. It starts off as a young man in the West Country, I think, and he's a naturalist. He's obsessed by nature, and he writes beautifully. And so the diary starts early, and he wants to be a naturalist. He doesn't go to university, he's, and he starts working as a, as a local country journalist, but he applies, he gets a job at the Natural History Museum eventually, and then he comes to London, and he's living in rooming houses with other kind of young men trying to make, I mean, you know, bright, educated, but not university young men trying to make their way mm -hmm. in the world. So it's a bit the world of, of Mr. Pooter, Diary of a Nobody, I don't know if you know it. I mean, it's a, a aspirant young people, and the girls they go around with, and so on. And so it's a strange combination of, of beautiful nature writing, the whole thing's beautifully written, the, the kind of young middle class, lower middle class men about town and the kind of tea parties they go to and life at Natural History Museum and London mm -hmm. and uh, the wars going on and it's kind of strange because it's like Victorian except they have telephones and motor cars are coming. And another thing about the book is it's very honest and revealing about himself and his aspirations and anxieties and thoughts about other people. And when it was published, it was, it was considered rather immoral and too revealing and too kind of unbuttoned. And uh, I mean, it's not unbuttoned, there's no kind of sexual element at all. No, not really. I mean, I, uh, but, but lots of, of personal honesty. And it, it, it was quite well known at the time. It seems to have died. But it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, interesting book in all kinds of ways. And uh, I mean, I'd recommend it, if for nothing else, just The Sense of London in, in, in the 1910, circa 1910 and so on. Uh, and it's beautifully written. What is your favourite TV show? So I've been watching The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel's. As, uh, you, uh, it's an American show set in New York in the 50s. About uh -huh. a young Jewish woman who's going to... By accident, she becomes a stand-up comedian in in Greenwich Village, in kind of Lenny okay. Bruce land. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's now been two series. The third one is about to start. And 
It's kind of pretty knockabout stuff. She comes from a Upper West Side Jewish family. Her father's a maths professor at Columbia and her husband, who she splits up with quite early on, but he's around all the time, is, is his parents are in the rag trade and, uh, and so there's quite a lot of Jewish caricature. In the second mm -hmm. series, they go up to the Catskills and so there's a lot of making fun of, of uh, uh, 50s Jewish middle class and, uh, and then there's Down in the Village and, and all the, the beats and so on and it's wonderful to look at. It's okay. very, it's very uh, well designed. I mean, it's, it's, and, and in fact, the, the second series becomes less and less realistic and more like a, uh, a musical with kind of sets and uh, set pieces mm -hmm. and so on. But it, uh, it's very funny and uh, very good to look at. I think I missed out on Mad Men. So, mm -hmm. so but, I, actually, yeah. but I, I, I've seen shots obviously, and, and I, I think in terms of of design and visual uh, impact, it's probably the same kind of same kind of thing. But my wife's, we watched an episode or two of Mad Men together, and she said she didn't didn't want to watch anymore because she grew up, started working before there was feminism and she didn't think it was very funny. And uh, okay. I understand if you stick it, uh, uh, the women get their own back or the men, the men get their comeuppance. But it's the, the first, uh, I think she was just finding it miserable. So we, so we skipped that. So, so uh, Mrs. Maisel's is something of the same it's in the 50s and lots of uh, wonderful costumes. And a big bit of it for me is that she, the hero, works in a department store in, at various stages in the story, and she works in the B. Altman apartment store, which is a great big uh, building in New York opposite the Empire State Building, and that's where I now work. That's where the CUNY City University right, okay. Graduate Center is. They took over the B. Altman building, mm -hmm. and so I quite enjoy it for that reason too. Which album did you listen to obsessively when you, when you were younger? I think the first album I bought was Highway 61 Revisited, uh -huh. and album, yeah. uh, I <laughs> guess I listened to that a uh, lot. And uh, <laughs> That's not nearly as embarrassing an answer as we were hoping for. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what is that? 19... No, for me it wouldn't have... I can't remember when it came out. Uh, um, can, you, can you... No, it's not, it's not that. No, well it... I would have guessed 65. And anyway, uh, so I'd known about Dylan before, but I didn't, and so fortunately I bought the one when he'd gone electric. I mean, not, uh -huh. not, not, not the, the acoustic stuff. I mean, he was great, and, uh, and I still think he's great. So that was the first one, and so I used to obsess about Dylan, and I also used to obsess about John Lennon. Mm -hmm. okay. which is interesting. But, see, I was a kid in South Africa. I hadn't... Uh, my parents travelled around all the time. I mean, they were from England, I'm from England, but we travelled mostly 
uh, through my teenage years, and uh, a lot of it was in South Africa. And so I didn't really have the class thing. Right. So, but I, John Lennon seemed to me so kind of knowing and wise and uh, hip, and I, you know, I really admired him. And I, I didn't have the thing, oh, here's a you know a working class hero, mm -hmm. a, a cheeky chappy. He just seemed to me uh, uh, a model of what you could be. So, so those are my two uh, uh, obsessive pop heroes. What did you want to be when you grew up? I don't think I ever had any ambitions <laughs> like that. Uh, okay, what did you expect was, to become when you grew up? I didn't know. Uh, okay. I, I mean, I was good at maths at school, and so I did maths at university, and what were you going to do with maths? I, I used to think I was good at maths, and switch from maths to philosophy because philosophy was more interesting but in retrospect I wasn't really good at maths I I mean I could I could follow all the theorems I could learn the techniques for solving the problems I could you know go right through the exam get it all right but I never I can't remember myself ever thinking you know, out of school about some mass issue. Mm -hmm. What happens if you go down there? What happens? Does this follow from that? I, I mean, I was never going to be a research mathematician. So, so when I was doing maths, or what am I going to do? Maybe I should be an actuary. I mean, was you know, uh, I, I, uh, and then I found philosophy, and then I uh, uh, never looked back. I mean, it was, mm -hmm. that was what I wanted to do. I mean, well, that's I like doing it. Uh, I enjoy it, uh, yeah, and so, uh, but no, I, I didn't have any other, I didn't have any definite ambitions and I was lucky to find philosophy, so uh, <laughs> that's... Yeah. <laughs> what do you like about being a philosopher? Um, kind of what's, what's not to like, I mean, no, <laughs> uh, uh, I do like thinking about things, not as I just said, uh, about abstract mathematics, but but things that are puzzling. Mm -hmm. I I like to understand things. I mean, I like to understand things even outside philosophy. And yeah. uh, it's um, I mean, I think philosophy is very worthwhile, and uh, uh, a society would be a much poorer society if it didn't have people doing philosophy. But I mean, I think of philosophy. It's trying to understand things that are puzzling. Yeah. And uh, I don't think philosophy especially has to do with how to live or ethics or so on. But, I mean, it's partly about those things because some of those things are puzzling. But they're things that are philosophical problems that are nothing to do with anything very much. My favourite example of the Zolka problem is why do mirrors reverse up left to right and not <laughs> upside down? Mm. You know, you... Uh, you put, the, you put the writing in front, it's all gone left to right differently, but the top of the writing is still at the top and the bottom of the writing is still at the bottom. And, and how can that be? Because space is the same left to right and up and mm. down and the laws of optics are the same. So why, right? And this is a... <laughs> it's a funny little problem. It's self-enclosed. It scarcely relates to anything else, but 
it's really tricky to get right. And, and there's, there's a few dozen serious philosophical articles trying to mm. people disagree about what's the right way to understand this issue. Now, I mean, I'm not saying that, that uh, this is something that everybody needs to think about. It's, but it's the kind of thing I like to think about. I, I get... I feel unsatisfied if I can't get it sorted out. And often I'll find myself just thinking about something like, I want to, I want to get it sorted out. So that's... Uh, that's my turn of mind, and philosophy encourages me to do that. Now, of course, I can do it for things that are of more interest and significance than the mirrors, you know, like what's the nature of causation. But uh, I'm able to, to exercise this, this curiosity and desire to solve puzzles in, in, the, in the course of thinking about issues that are substantial and important. So that's what I, I like about it. What don't you like about being a philosopher? Nothing. <laughs> I mean, I... OK. I, uh, okay well, what, what don't you like about philosophy as a, as, a, as a field? So... That's interesting. I mean, philosophy's changed since I've been doing it. It's become much more specialised, much more professional. Mm -hmm. uh, didn't used to be like that. So my supervisor was Ian, Ian Hacking. Okay. And I once heard him refer to another philosopher as the kind of philosopher who talks about the profession. And uh, I must say, I've never talked about the profession ever since. And I kind of don't like the idea that philosophy is a, a profession that, uh, with specialities and institutions and so on. And it wasn't so much like that when I started doing philosophy. Look, I mean, that, 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 that's, that's a fairly superficial thing. But the, the level of detail and sophistication and precision that goes into some philosophical areas, I think is, is not especially good or productive. So, there's a big gender imbalance in philosophy. Mm -hmm. Philosophy is peculiar among humanities subjects and social science subjects. I mean, mass is a big gender imbalance. But another subject that's with big gender imbalance is economics. And there's some interesting research showing the subjects with these unusual gender imbalances are the subjects in which the senior people prize brilliance. They think in order to be mm -hmm. a good philosopher or a good economist or a good mathematician, you've got to be brilliant. Yeah. And it's not enough to work hard. I mean, in neuroscience, people think you don't have to be brilliant to be a good neuroscientist. You have to kind of be uh, intelligent. You have to be committed. You have to be lucky enough to have a good idea and so on. But I mean, this kind of brilliant insight uh, mm -hmm. is not, it's not, it's not crucial. And I worry that, that one thing that goes on in philosophy is that people choose topics and 
ways of arguing that have no special virtue except it allows them to display brilliance. So I think there's a lot, I mean, I, th I, I suspect, I don't know the field so well, but I suspect in economics, I mean, economics becomes very uh, top-heavily mathematical in many areas in a way that's not commensurate to trying to really understand the real economy and so on. So, so economists like clever mathematical results. And you think, well, why are they spending all the time on this? Well, it's because they prize this kind of super matty cleverness mm -hmm. and so there's encouragement for people to work in ways that can display that. And I think we get quite a lot of that in philosophy as well. So uh, I'm not against brilliance per se, but I'm against the, the subject being kind of sucked into areas, the only virtue of which is that it can allow people to display brilliance. And so I worry, I worry about, about that. There's too much clever techie philosophy, uh, which, I, mean, I, I, no, I, I don't want to be somebody who says that every bit of philosophy has to be relevant to social problems mm -hmm. or non-philosophical issues. But I do think you should be working on things that are relevant at least to other bits of philosophy or, I mean, have some kind of... Uh, uh, ramifications that that uh, that aren't just local and technical, and I worry that that quite a lot of philosophy is like that. Okay, thank you very much, David. Yes, not at all. That was a lot of fun. Thank you. You've been listening to Out of the Vat, a podcast brought to you by the Department of Philosophy, Logic, and Scientific Method, the Forum for Philosophy, and the Centre for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science all based at the London School of Economics and Political Science.